Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek Discovery podcast. Join Ken and Sabriel each week as they explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Hello and welcome to Transporter Lock episode number 41 for season two of Star Trek Discovery. We're here to recap everything that's happened in the last 14 episodes. I'm your co-host, Ken Gagney. Joining me as always is my captain. Hello, it's Sabriel Mastin and and we have a special guest today. Hello. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Susan Arndt from the Continue Podcast and I'm stoked to talk about the best track ever. Woohoo! Welcome aboard, <laughs> Commander Arndt. Wow, the best Trek ever. That is high praise. You know, I mean, I I, I have been giving it serious thought over the the final few episodes of season two, and I, I and to be fair, part of that comes from it being a product of its time. You know, every iteration improves on the last one, but. Yeah, I really feel like this is the best track. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Every iteration improves on the last one, so every Star Trek has been better than the last one? No, no, no. <laughs> she didn't say let, that. Let us remember, failure is a data point. <laughs> this is true. Okay. We, we can learn what not to do. And Discovery has taken all those lessons to heart. Well, maybe not all of them, but a lot of them. And also, I mean, it's it's the benefit of better costuming, better writing, a society that is slightly closer to the society it's, that is being portrayed in the show with regard with regard to things like representation and equality and all that good stuff. So all the usual social justice warrior stuff. Yeah, all that stuff. Yes. <laughs> we're in your Star Treks finally after all these years we're finally get social commentary in Star Trek. I know, right? Like <laughs> remember the good old days when it wasn't political at all? <laughs> Oh, why do they have to put politics into Star Trek? Oh, oh God. Honestly. <laughs> so, Susan, you were on the show previously about a year and a half ago discussing season one, episode 10, Despite Yourself. Mm -hmm. So you followed along on season one. Now you have just finished season two along with the rest of us. I'd like to hear from you. How do these two seasons compare in your opinion? I feel like season two is is a dramatic improvement over season one. I think I feel like season one was trying very, very hard to get and hold people's attention and try what well, because it had it had a tough sell. It had to convince people, at least in the US, that paying for the CBS app was worth it. Outside the US, you can watch it on Netflix. It's a different thing. But here, the only way to see the show was was on the CBS app. And so they had to it had to convince people that this is a good show. It is worth this app for. It is worth your attention. It's not your same old Star Trek. It's blah, all these things. And I really felt like it tried a little too hard to do all that stuff. It was it was just action all the time. Things were blowing up all the time. And on top of that, it had to explain the whole mycelial network. And that takes some doing. Like, I actually had to read up outside of the show. Like, okay, explain this to me as though I am five. Because I don't get how this is, right? So I, I, I had to do all that. And, and season two, having done all of that, could actually just tell a story. And work more on interpersonal relationships and these characters as 
characters and as a team that works together on a ship and and less like hey please don't please keep watching so it was less about establishing foundation and more about developing the characters that we've now already met right exactly and heck even like season one they had the what i think on last count 47 different showrunners before the show finally launched what no no not that many but uh it just seems they always had a different person in charge at the helm uh every few months for a while there it's like, I can't, can't imagine that was easy to work around. Well, yeah. It was a bumpy road to season one's launch. Indeed. Indeed. And I think that shows. To that point, some people feel like season two was largely trying to correct the mistakes of season one and even to undo some of the writing. Do you feel that was the case? I don't know that I, I felt that way, but I did definitely, I, I felt like it was more centered. I felt like it was a singular thought from beginning to end. It wasn't going in so many different directions. I didn't, the Klingons were a thing. And then mycelial network was a thing. And then Georgiou and the mirror universe was a thing. Like there was just a lot going on in season one. And I, I felt like it was a, it lacked a little confidence about the story it was trying to tell because it wasn't each individual idea had to be carried through the whole episode because it was too big and it didn't connect as well as I think they hoped it would. I could make a similar argument about season two because the finale was the culmination of time travel, Mm -hmm. characters from another dimension, artificial intelligence, and this sibling of Spock's that we've never heard of before. Yeah, but I felt like all of that, at at every point one of those was introduced, it was all in service of the main storyline. Control is going to become self-aware, wipe out all life in the universe, right? Like that, And everything off was a branch off of that central tree. I didn't feel like that about season one, me personally. Yeah, I can get that. Because season one, we like we had spent so much time like, this war is important, this war is important. All of a sudden, we're in the mirror universe for how many episodes? And then we come back and, oh, we missed the war. Right? <laughs> I, I was like, I mean, I enjoyed the universe greatly, but yeah, we like jumped over a lot of this thing that they established as very important. Well, I can understand why they put that mid-season break where they did, because it really was almost like two mini-seasons. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, it's not, I get it, because they were very clearly, tr- the first season of any show is rough, because unless you have a very clear, like Game of Thrones even this is included, even though they had a very clear roadmap, the the actors are getting used to each other. They're getting used to the set. They're getting used to the kinds of words that have to come out of their mouth. They're figuring out who they are. Like, just look at the, the progression of Tilly from the first time we meet her to now. You could see, okay, she's been given this character who's very nervous and anxious and uncertain, and she's supposed to be this very dynamic contrast to Michael. That's just the bare bones of a character. That's a sketch. That's where you start. Now, by the end of season two, we understand Tilly better as a person who has those traits as opposed to those traits walking around in a uniform. Right. She's no longer a stereotype or a caricature. Correct. Correct. Do you feel we saw the same character development in Tilly in season two that we did in season one? Because in season one, she stepped up and embodied the character of Captain Killy. Mm-hmm. Whereas in season two, we saw a lot of her stumbling into meetings, you know, having outbursts on the bridge where it was inappropriate, etc. It feels like she is still a cadet, 
in my opinion. For me, her development in season two just felt more subtle. She did have these moments of, oh yeah, I'm the comedic relief this scene, which a lot of people were really starting to hate online. But I think it kind of shows like just a slower growth. She's starting to mature a bit. She's starting to get used to being on this ship here. And, you know, even the actor herself is probably getting much more used to her role. So I think it's instead of the huge, like, here's this character who is a huge counter to Michael, this time she's a bit more subtle, yet still growing. And that's my opinion. See, my, and again, there's a lot of bias in this because I relate to Tilly so much. (laughs) But what I see in her is this, at first she believes that if you are going to be an officer, if you're going to be a captain, you have to be a certain kind of person. You got to talk a certain way, walk a certain way, act a certain way, think a certain way. And over season two, what I see her understanding is that's not true. She can be herself a person who is extremely capable and yet still makes jokes at inappropriate times and is a little silly and, you know, talks a lot. What I saw over the, the course of season two is her finding her own confidence in who she actually is as opposed to who she thinks her mom wants her to be. Like for me, the, the Captain Killy thing, while delightful, that was her pretending to be somebody completely different. Like that's way easier than actually being comfortable in your own skin. So that's what I see in, uh, with her in season two is just her getting comfortable in her own skin and in relation to these other incredibly capable people around her. It's like looking around and saying, wait a minute, if I'm standing next to him and he's really good at his job, maybe I'm really good at my job, (laughs) right? Like I see, that's what I see in her. And also she had very different role models between the two seasons when she's looking for what a captain should be like. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, the very first season's captain was ultimately a villain. And even when he wasn't, he was still running his ship like a military vessel because that's what he was accustomed to in his home universe. Mm-hmm. Captain Pike was a very different character. And we want to know, Susan, just how much do you think Pike is now the best Star Trek captain ever? Oh, he's the best. There's no question in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wholeheartedly agree. I love Captain Pike so much. He was just, he was the embodiment of Starfleet as they pushed down our throat. But, uh, <laughs> but for sure, I loved it. I love every second of him on screen. Yeah, if I don't get a a show with him and Spock and number one, I'm flipping some kind of table. I'm rioting in some sort of fashion. I I will write a letter. (laughs) (laughs) And it will be stern. It will be, there will be stern wording. I might be Kurt even. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll be right there with you joining in that campaign because Pike. I can totally see them now doing some short treks with him after the fan outcry of how much we loved him. I don't want short treks. I want more treks. I want more. I want like a legit, I mean, because I mean, we, we know where it ends. Like I honestly, I'm not interested in another Kirk. Don't give me that. I don't care. Don't need it. Fine. But like the, like it's basically Spock the early years. Yeah. I think that would be super rad. And he's the best. Here's why he's the best captain. A. Okay. The fact that he's smoking hot is not part of my reasoning, <laughs> but it sure doesn't hurt. This His portrayal is a captain who remembers that a crew is made of people, right? Like you have to treat them as 
people. Sometimes people get angry. Sometimes people get scared. Sometimes people have doubt, right? Like you have to meet them where they live. But at the same time, somebody's got to be leading that charge. Someone has to make the decision. And he balances those two things really beautifully. Like he's not coming in there and enforcing his will on people, but he's also not going to have a debate. This is the situation. We are going to deal with it. I am here for you, but this is how it's got to be. He's just such a natural leader in that role that you go, oh, well, yeah, of course he's the captain. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Oh, I need to blow up the ship now. All right, fine. Yeah. Self-destruct. Oh, well, he's okay. Yes, sir. It's just that kind of, that natural sort of, I believe he's making the best choice. (laughs) Yeah. But also a character without flaws can be boring. Did he come up short in any way? I find him boring. (laughs) I don't, I don't think he's flawless. I didn't see any, I didn't see him coming up short, but I do believe that that captain has been through some stuff. He has seen and done things he regrets. I mean, because you. You don't get to that point of serenity with having to make decisions and having to live with the consequence unless you've come out the other side of bad events. Heck, even in the Star Trek canon, this takes place after the cage. And the one of the opening scenes of uh, that episode is him talking to his space doctor, because they made sure to shove the word space into front of everything. <laughs> but, but he was having a serious conversation about how Starfleet life was draining on him and he was going to retire. And so he had already seen some shit at that point. Now we see him after the events of the cage and this few years between there, like he's worked through that and he's comfortable again in his position. Uh, so I, I would love to see that growth there too. Gosh, oh, I want more Pike. <laughs> I mean, also something I really respect is so he touches the time crystal he sees what is ultimately good which we already knew as star trek fans we know what he's going to end up in that chair and we know he's how he's going to end up and he sees that and he's afraid and you see in that moment he doesn't want to right like he doesn't he's like no i don't want to end up like that i don't want to have to sacrifice myself for this i don't want to and that's a very human reaction that's so relatable it's always a little annoying when you see the super noble leader who's going to, you know, charging in to make the sacrifice without pause. Like, really? Not even a pause? Really? Yeah, yeah. The scene after when he's talking to Lorel and Ash on the on his or in his ready room, he is so visibly shaken. It's something we just don't normally see. Like he looks traumatized and oh, it's so powerful. Yeah, he's very haunted, and he he can't even bring himself to discuss it with anybody else because that would make it all the more real to him. Mm-hmm. Oof. It's not like other captains haven't seen and done things. I mean, Picard in the chain of command and how many lights there were. I mean, he did not come out oh. of that the same person. True. I mean, Picard is before this, this portrayal of Pike, Picard would have been my choice as the best captain because he's, he tries always to do the thing that is right that he can live with. And I respect that. But he's just, he's, he's also very aloof. I understand there has to be distance between a captain and his crew. Like you can't be buddy buddy with your crew and then send them on a mission where they might die. That's extremely difficult. But there was just always this sort of distance between him and everybody, which is, you know, why he, uh, they, 
purposefully had the episodes of him with Vash, where we get to see this different side of him. We go home, we see his relationship with his brother to to humanize him. Pike is always human. His humanity is always present, even though his leadership is also always present. And that's why I like him better. Yeah, it wasn't until the TNG finale, All Good Things, where Picard finally sat down to play poker with his command crew. Right, right. And that was all the more meaningful because he had always maintained that distance up until he realized, this is my family and this may be the only family I'll ever have. Mm -hmm. But can Pike in just one season be a better captain than Picard was in seven? Yes. But again, (laughs) to be fair, again, this is part of what I was saying about Discovery benefiting from being the newest one. A lot of Next Generation suffers from who was involved with it at the time, the time it was made. There are issues inherent within that show that are a function of its place in time. And Discovery suffers less because it's a more modern show with more modern sensibilities. And it's a completely different kind of show. Like It's not the episodic nature. They're telling a story here where TNG probably had a very loose outline of what they wanted to do. Mm, That's a good point. Yeah, characters have more concrete arcs. You know, I feel like if Picard had an arc, it was almost accidental at times. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, even television has changed in the time between Next Generation and Discovery. The way stories are told, the way... I mean, keep in mind, like, when Next Generation came out, the internet was not a thing. Yeah. (laughs) There was no stanning. Oh, you know, there was no uh, Twitter interaction with fans. None of none of that happened. So it was a very different relationship between the show and its fans. Whereas now the fans are almost contributors to the the show and the way it's received and the way it's marketed, the way it's communicated, all that stuff. I'm just having a flashback now. The way we learned about Trek was either the preview for the next episode or TV guy. Yes. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> My, how things have changed. <laughs> right? Right? Like, you could, can you imagine actually being, having the kind of access to the actors at that time that we do now? Now, I can tweet at Jason Isaacs, right? Like, I can, I can tweet at Anson Mount and be like, dude, you were amazing. Uh, or the Admiral, uh, her message after the finale to the fans you couldn't have stuff like that back then and it makes it much more much more personal but also i feel like there's how do i put this there's just more of a relationship between the show and its fans now yeah but how many of us before the internet was hugely popular wrote fan letters to our favorite star trek actors well, I'm going to guess you did. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't have been the only one. Come on. I didn't. What? Nope. Nope. <laughs> That's how I got one of my very first Star Trek celebrity autographs was Robert ah! Picardo. Hold on. That's awesome. That's so I cool. sent him a self-addressed stamped envelope. I was like, hey, I think you're great as the doctor on Voyager. Can I get a photo? And he sent one back with a signature on it. Aw. <laughs> just... Yeah, the uh, Robert Picardo autograph I got, it wasn't personalized to me. It was just his name. And then 20 years later, I saw him at a convention and I brought him that same photo. And I said, can you add my name to this? Aw, I love that. And he added the date of the original signature and then the date of the new signature. So you could see the 20 year gap that took to complete this autograph. Oh, that's fun. (laughs) That's super fun. He's a nice guy. 
I love that. That's great. So speaking of the serial nature of this season, Susan, on Twitter, you commented how if you miss one episode of season two of Discovery, you are SOL. But how is that much different from any other show that's on now? It's it's not as different. I mean, it depends on the show, right? Like you, if you miss The Expanse, if you miss Magicians, the same is very much true. I feel like with this season of Discovery, there there was it's a very smart story they're telling and it's a very involved story they're telling so if you may, okay the exception might be when we drop tyler's baby off <laughs> i could do that like hey i have a baby now uh, <laughs> let's go stick it on a planet yay i mean that was you could miss that one but by and large especially in the in the back half of the season if if you miss an episode you're going to be, wait, how did they, what is this? Who? Hang on. There's going to be a lot of pausing and looking stuff up on Wikipedia. I feel like. And that's the benefit of having it served to us this way. You can make sure you just go back and watch the episode. You don't have to wait until reruns six months later. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's true. I remember the seventh and final season of DS9. We missed an episode. Oh no. And I was like, we can't watch any more DS9 until that episode comes back. Yep. You know, one of my coworkers was just about to start watching the finale of Discovery, and it starts off with last time on Discovery, and he sees Poe, who's a character he was not aware of, and he's like, did I miss something? And he goes scrolling back through all of season two's episodes, and he's like, I don't remember this character at all, and he had no idea that Short Treks was a thing. Oh, yep. With the episode with Saru's sister, they sort of summarize the short trek in case you missed it. You don't really miss that much. But with Poe, she plays a vital role, and they didn't do a terrible lot to summarize it. That's true. That's true. That was, yeah. My husband was asking me about that. He's like, who is this? I'm like, don't you remember? She was invisible, and there was, there was, she really liked sweets. You don't remember that? And he's like, I think I slept through that. <laughs> I'm like, here's what you need to know. Super smart. Done. Yeah. <laughs> and it's especially bad for viewers outside the USA where the short treks never aired in the first place. Are they not also part of the Netflix no. collection? Yeah, they came out eventually uh, uh, when season two came out. Oh, um, okay. So they weren't yeah. available when they first aired. Right. But, but then they got retroactively added? Yep. Did not know that. Okay. So we talked a lot about Captain Pike and Anson Mount and how smoking hot he is. <laughs> He's smoking hot. <laughs> not going to disagree. But... There was another familiar character introduced this season, that being Ethan Peck as Spock. What did you think of him, Susan? It took me the entire season to get into Spock. I didn't... <sighs> the whole, oh, we don't talk anymore, and, and Spock's crazy, and she's talking to her parents about him, and it was just... I mean, I understand they had to set up that this relationship existed, that they don't talk to each other anymore. I, I get that they there was groundwork that needed to be laid. For me, it was very tedious until like when he, <laughs> this was so good though, when he's in her quarters or she's in his quarters and she invites him to play chess or something. And he's like, oh, sure. The Red Angel chooses me. And the one person who can help me through this is you. Of course it is. I'm like, oh, man. (laughs) That was so fun. And from like that point forward, I very much enjoyed the portrayal. 
but up until that point, it was just, oh, God. So you liked it when Spock was being snarky and rude? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That was great. I mean, granted, he and Bones always had this sort of a relationship, but he was especially emotional for a Vulcan in this season. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm, I think it's important to remember, this is a very, very young Spock we're seeing. Right? Like, this is this is before Kirk's Enterprise. So he's still very, very young, relatively speaking. He's not, he is going to go through some stuff. It is going to shape him as a man. Eventually, you know, we are the we are the sum total of our experiences and the Spock we first met so 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 long ago is the sum total of everything that happened to him to that point. He didn't, you know, he hasn't always just been chill. A stoic badass. Mm-hmm. A stoic badass. There you go. <laughs> On the outside, looking in, they also wanted to try to fix, like, why was he showing so much emotion in the pilot? And it worked out, like, wow, we could tell a really good story here where he was younger. And he is showing that emotion more. Uh, so I think it worked well in multiple ways. They're just, like, using the material they had and make a pretty cool story with it overall. Mm-hmm. You mean back in the menagerie when he was smiling at the singing flowers? Yeah. Yeah. You know, over this course of the season now, like in retrospect, like I was sitting here list- or talking, I was starting to think like I really could have done without the whole Spock is uh, not himself right now and he's running away and no one can find him. Yeah. Like, at the time I was like, because they, they just kept teasing us like, oh, where is he now? Where is he now? And I'm like, you know, I, I, I really think I could have done without that. It, it went on too long. Like how many scenes of Michael sort of tearily staring off at something do we did we really need like we get it <laughs> you two are estranged i understand let's pick it up <laughs> and then the return to talos 4 i thought that was fantastic because it was so familiar to us fans of star trek but i don't know that it contributed as much to the story as it was built up to they were going for the whole like he went back here to get recentered. i don't think they conveyed that as well as they could have in the episode because I remember, I remember having to go back and look up, like, wait, what happened here? And apparently just being in presence of them and sorting things out there was the best place to do it. That was fan service. Totally. Simple. I yeah. loved it. <laughs> Especially given that the planet has a death penalty associated with it, the only one in Starfleet. I felt like the stakes could have been higher for them to warrant going back there. That was... <sighs> That was a, in my opinion, failed attempt to do fan service and shoehorn it into a a storyline that would also work for people who don't know the history. Like, yay, we're trying to serve two masters with this. I just don't think it worked. Is that to say you didn't enjoy it? It didn't a lot, no. It was fine. It didn't bother me. Like, I didn't, I wasn't like, oh my God, that was garbage. But I wasn't like, that was the best episode <laughs> ever. I understand it served a function. Mm-hmm. I mean, it gave us the coolest previously on Star Trek we've had, where they showed the original series. Okay, that's <laughs> This is very again, true. It goes into the fan service part. Yeah, yeah. 
So we talked a little bit about Spock and his relationship with Burnham. That's something that Sabriel and I have been talking about season long, and we sometimes come to different conclusions. Sabriel's theory being that I have three older siblings and she's an only child, and so maybe there is some empathy either absent or present there. Susan, of course, you have a family. <laughs> I, do, I do, yes. As we were talking off the air. And how did that relationship on the on Discovery resonate with you? Um, I didn't... I didn't connect with it on that level uh i am i am very much more of the the crew is your family like that's what i relate to because uh that's my own situation as i have chosen uh my family but i thought i did think that the actors uh for spock and michael did a very good job of conveying we got history right like we have the same parents. We we are we lived in the same home, because that is a an intimacy that exists only with the people that you grew up with, right? Whether or not you're actually close to them as individuals, there is an intimacy that comes from being raised in the same home that will never go away. And I felt like they did a very good job of having that, like the way they speak to each other. They don't speak to anybody else like that. And I thought that's a that's a good job of acting and a good job of writing, but I didn't I didn't it didn't feel brotherly sisterly to me, except in that in that way. Like you know, Spock's not he's not busting out like nastiness for anybody else. He's just doing that for her. <laughs> like you know, he would never speak to another crew member that way. Like. Of course, it has to be you. Like sarcasm? No, <laughs> no. He he reserves that for someone that he has that close of a relationship with. I do feel like their relationship emphasized the distinction between liking somebody and loving somebody. Yes. Like I love my brothers, but I don't always like them, and I yep. got that same sense with Spock and Burnham. Like she went to the ends of the earth to rescue him and bring him to Talos Four, and the first thing they do when he's cognizant of his surroundings is verbally spar with each other. <laughs> yep. Yeah. 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 Like it's like like I'm not doing this because you're my best friend. I'm doing this because you're my brother. And that is an important distinction. I think you're exactly right. It also reminds me of on DS9, where O'Brien said to Bashir, I love my wife, but I like you more. (laughs) 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 There's a distinction there. There is. There is. And it is. Yeah. Another character who played a big role this season, who I am very curious about, is Control. This is an AI who we never saw prior to becoming sentient and malevolent. And I feel like there was a missed opportunity there for us to see it being used in its intended purpose. And I also was left confused why it wanted to eradicate all sentient life. I mean, it's not intrinsically true that AI is evil. So why was control? Any theories? Well, I mean, that's not evil. It's an equation right? All of the problems are caused by sentient creatures because they make choices. They have free will. Remove that. Everything runs perfectly. It's logical, right? It's just math. When you take away empathy and, and context and emotion, or my dog, 
<laughs> then it's then that's oh no I get it I get it you you want to you want to make everything as perfect as it can be then you got to take the messy parts out and the messy parts are caused by people making choices that are sometimes bad or sometimes ill-advised or just silly or whimsical or random or what have you I do completely agree though that it would have been really helpful to see control as it was intended. Like see them talking to it and getting advice from it and all that, because the Admiral comes in and it's this big info dump. And it's like, wait a minute, I got to listen to every word you're saying, because I don't know what you're talking about. This is new info. Okay. Let's back that up. Wait. Okay. So control, they use it for, okay. Okay. Got it. All right. Now, onto the part where it's a threat, right? Like you had to identify the thing before you could figure out why the thing was dangerous. Yeah, that was, a, I agree, totally missed opportunity. Like I didn't feel like this, uh, prote- or antagon- the bad guy, uh, it was totally like the bad guy we should have been feeling. Like I always felt something was missing. And I think that was it. We just didn't establish its normalcy in this universe and how counter it is that it is uh, acting counter to that. Well, especially since if if you watched last season, the threat was obvious, right? That dude over there wants to shoot me in the face. Got it. Go. I understand. Dude wants to shoot me. Cool. It's very simple. It's very visual. This season, it's this red angel. We Things are happening. I'm confused. Okay. Mystery. Got it. There's a thing that shows up. Nobody knows what it is. Great. Visual. Got it. Control was a concept. It was an idea. It was words. We really needed to see it. And I understand they tried to do that later when it started taking over bodies. But by then, we already we already understood, okay, it's a bad AI. I get it. Whatever. It would have been very, very helpful to have some sort of visual representation of it. So we could see it, so we could get it, so we could understand what it's doing before we start seeing the repercussions of it. Then basically we get Hal. We see a visualist, yeah. we get a Hal sitting there like, oh, now we all know that's evil. <laughs> yeah, oh, you're not wrong. How did Section 31 build control without understanding Isaac Asimov's three <laughs> rules in the first place? <laughs> I mean, yes, eliminating all sentient life from the equation will solve the problem, but it violates the first rule. Those are just guidelines. (laughs) Asimov's three suggestions. (laughs) We'd really like it if you did this, but if not, that's okay. Takes on a completely different meaning. Really loses its punch. But in a certain sense, though, Section 31 is the group that's going to make sure it's it ignores the morally gray areas. So I can totally see it plausible that they would not uh, follow Isomov's suggestions. Who knows what kind of influence they had. Here's the thing. Every, 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 every organization of the Section 31 type always thinks they're smart enough to control the thing always arrogance is a is is predictable and repetitive like oh no it's fine we we know what we're doing it won't do it to us okay cool georgiou's uh interaction with what was that dude's name Leland? 
Leland? Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Him. Like all of her, all of her conversations with him are basically exactly that. You know, she's going, mm, you sure about that? And he's like, of course I'm sure. <laughs> so when did the empress of the Terran empire become one of the good guys? Uh, that's a strong word. She's, she, she's good adjacent. Anti-hero. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, she serves her first and foremost. She loves Michael. She will not verbalize that. She will not make that clear. But she loves her. And she wants to protect her. The end. Which is odd because it's not her Michael. Okay, but dude. (laughs) If you had a daughter, right? And she dies. And you, you get... And she is there standing in front of you. And it's your daughter, but just kinda not? You just described Pet Cemetery. Yeah. No, Michael's not going around trying to kill everybody. But Georgiou is. Well, okay. I mean, you know, (laughs) Scorpion gonna Scorpion. (laughs) She's not trying to kill everybody. Right. She just, everyone's a means to her ends. There you go. I mean, Burnham has three moms, and I think she probably loves and trusts Georgiou the least of the three, because she sees Georgiou for who she is, which is not the captain that she used to serve under. Well, that's true. Yes. You know, it's something I loved about Georgia this season was uh, I, I had mentioned like this character, she loves Michael. And the next week, Michael's actual mom comes in and basically says like, yeah, yeah, I know you love her. And I was like, ha, I could sense that even on this very evil character um, or gray area character. But I love that she is this very different take on motherhood or, and care. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I just, I love this character so much. She's one of my favorite car- characters in Discovery. So the there's a, I forget what culture it is, but they uh, they have a statue of motherhood that is two-sided. The one side is, you know, mom cradling a baby, and the, I think there's like a basket of apples or something. And then you turn it around, and it's the same woman with a sword and a shield. <gasps> that's so cool. Right? Because, like, that's that's motherhood, right? Like, oh, I'm sorry. Did you think you were going to mess with my kid? Got it. Throw down, right? Like, now I'm going to shoot you in the face. I'm going to throw entire worlds at you. I will burn everything you have ever laid eyes on because you looked at my kid sideways. And I mean, that's parenthood, I should say. It's not only moms. But I feel like that's the two so- – like, Georgiou is the warrior and and Amanda is the, you know, nurturing b- basket of apples mom. So which one is Dr. Burnham? <sighs> Dr. Burnham, I, you know? She's a complicated one. Something she was one for a while and then changed to the other. I'm not sure she's either, to be perfectly honest. She's just so distant. Oh, she even said, like, basically, no, you are a memory to me. You're nothing. You're dust. Yeah. Like, she gave birth to Michael, but is she really Michael's mom? Well, when she said she was dust, that reminds me of when Sarah Connor was saying to the doctor in the Institute, like, you're already dead to me. I've seen your future and you're a ghost. You're a skeleton. Because Judgment Day is inevitable. And Dr. Burnham saw the future where control eliminates everything. So what's the point in getting attached to somebody that you've already seen the future, your own history, and they're dead? She's just a very jaded... I mean, she's mothered by blood at this point. That's it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't blame her. You know, I don't... Because A, she's been alone for a very long time. And as you say, 
she knows how this all ends up. And so, you know, she wasn't there when Michael was growing up. She, you know, all that she didn't get to be mom, right? She now has this other role, a more important role, honestly, you know, trying to save everything in the universe. Yeah. Like, no, I don't get to be a mom because I got to go do this because I'm the only one who can do it because that's the hand I've been dealt, which sucks. But here we are, right? Like she's that. I feel like she gave up that role in Michael's life, except from Michael's perspective, because, you know, Michael had a mom and then her mom died and and she has this vision of her idealized mom. That person doesn't exist. So I, I think that's it's it's the it's the image of mom, you know, the image that we conjure in our heads of this concept of mom when we're kids. And that's Michael's actual mother, the one who gave birth to her. And then we have the nurturing mom who, you know, I love you and I want you to succeed and I'll, I'll hold you when you cry and I will give you the tools you need to, to go out into the world. And that's Amanda. And then we have, look at my kids sideways and I will burn down your <laughs> life. And, and that's Philippa. I wholeheartedly agree. All that. <laughs> Yeah, it's been very interesting watching a Star Trek show where the main character is not the captain, and that allows them to cycle through captains every season. But that's one of the things I was curious about. Last season, we had a very diverse cast. As you were saying, Susan, representation on this Star Trek is better than any other Star Trek to come before. The captain was, first of all, Philippa Georgiou, who they immediately killed in the pilot and replaced with a straight white cis man. And when he's gone, they replace him with a straight white cis man. And so despite the diversity of the cast, do we still have a patriarchy here? Oh, honey, no. No, 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 no. Let me tell you about the finale, sir. There's this moment in the finale that is... That was so meaningful to me and still is. I get emotional just thinking about it. So the torpedo is stuck and they're like, well, heck, we got to do something about this. So who goes to deal with it? Number one in the Admiral, two women. Two women go off to work on this. And then the captain, Captain Pike, goes down to deal with it because it's it's his ship and he's the captain and the admiral kicks him out. And she's like, no, mm-mm. this is me. Get out because that's what an admiral does, right? To have women in these roles, like every majorly important thing that happened this season happened because of women. And there, it wasn't called out. It wasn't like, oh, girl power. Oh, we're going to. It it just was. Smartest person on the ship, chick. Oh, the incredibly smart person we need to help us do this impossible thing, chick. The one making the sacrifice to make it all happen, chick. That doesn't happen in Star Trek. It's always dudes coming to the rescue. Some dude going to come save the day or, or have the idea, the stroke of genius, even data, dude. And so I don't care if they put Lorca in the chair. I don't care if they put Pike in the chair. I don't care that Saru's a dude because that's 
just one part of the ship as a whole. And there's so many women making everything happen. I just, <laughs> I used to, I, I grew up watching Star Trek with my dad, right? So I'm like seven years old and I'm watching OG Star Trek with my dad. And all the women are wearing short skirts and they're there basically to run and scream and point or be nurses or be rescued or whatever. But I watched it because it's, you know, it's in space and I love space and that's cool. And I'm watching it with my dad. And I just, you know, some little girl is going to be watching this show and she's not going to see short skirts and women standing off to the side screaming. She's going to see number one in the Admiral going in there to save the ship because it needs doing and they're stepping up. And I think that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I was just even thinking even more characters that, while you were talking there too. Like uh, Jet Reno. We have a snarky engineer who's a woman. Oh God, I love Reno so much. Yes. <laughs> I love Reno so much. Oh my God. Yeah, except that she was conspicuously missing for the first five episodes after they introduced her. Well, I mean, the same thing happened to uh, Admiral Cornwell. They, they, they just kind of showed up here and there, like suddenly exactly where they need to be. But, like, but, Corn- okay. but Cornwell was not a Discovery crew person. We knew no. Jet Reno was somewhere on Discovery. And <laughs> sure, she showed up when she was important. But to your point, Saverell, even you have said we would have loved to have seen more Jet Reno. I think you're just confirming it. Yeah. Like they showed up when they needed, but yeah, I would have loved to see Jet Reno. I want her as a regular character if the actress wants to do it. <laughs> well, as far as I know, she has been catapulted a thousand years into the future. If she wants to be back. They have they can, they have the ability to have her back, and I'm so excited. I mean, Scotty isn't in every episode of OG Star Trek. Yeah. He shows up when he needs to do things. Right? Like, mm-hmm. the Admiral, first of all, an Admiral, an Admiral shouldn't be around all that much because she's a freaking Admiral. She's got other things to do. <laughs> and that ship that she saved was the OG Enterprise. What did you think about its reimagining, Susan? Oh my god, I I was I was beside myself. <laughs> it's so beautiful. It's so like uh I mean it was just a pure on nostalgia bomb for me. Like the the handles in the elevator I lost it. Yeah, when when season one ended and they got the Enterprise's call sign, if I recall, I was literally in tears. And yeah. then when they stepped aboard the bridge of the Enterprise and they welcomed Captain Pike home and they got in that turbo lift and they twisted the handle just like in Trials and Tribulations and the original theme song is playing gently in the background, oh, it was overwhelming. <laughs> and that's, see, that's the kind of fan service that does serve both audiences. Yeah. As opposed to Talos 4. Like the new viewer has no context for any of that stuff and they don't need it. It's like, oh, okay, now this is his ship and they're in the elevator and it's different because it's a different kind of ship than Discovery. Fine, whatever. But for the fan, it's like, oh, they're gone. Oh, I feel so seen. Oh, you know? <laughs> they did the noise thing. It is the noise. <laughs> <laughs> I. Loved seeing the Enterprise bridge so bad. I mean, I was enjoying seeing just the hallways and whatnot, but let alone we finally got that bridge scene. I was like, mm-hmm. I'm just sitting here like my my viewings. I'm just, I was getting distracted by the bridge, looking. Oh, they did that. Oh, they did that. They did the curve thing. They did that. I'm like, <laughs> it was the so thing cool. that that really got me, really got me hard. So Spock shaves, right? It's the very very end. Spock shaves. He comes onto the bridge and his 
his blue shirt, and he goes and sits at his station with the viewer. With the viewer, and then the 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 thing that makes kind of circles the swirly on a thing, round yeah. screen. Yeah, the swirly <laughs> thing that has no function at all. It's just there to look cool, and it's there. And I I'm just I'm like bawling. I'm like, <laughs> reaction like oh, the swirly thing <laughs> i'm like please just look into the viewer just look into it just please <laughs> just once <laughs> i was glad that after so many times that they have perfectly recreated that bridge they did it in relics on tng they did it on trials and tribulations on d space nine they did it in the mirror universe episode on enterprise they always made it look exactly the same and now finally as much as we love that original bridge, they were willing to reimagine it and bring it forward using today's technology and design aesthetic. And they did that while still being true to the original schematics. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, that's why I love it so much. It doesn't look like it was made in the 60s, but it looks like the Enterprise's bridge. Yeah, exactly. And doing those two things simultaneously is no small feat. Agreed. When they first step back onto the bridge of the Enterprise in the penultimate episode of the season, number one mentions that there will be no more holographic communications ever. And I had to go into Memory Alpha to figure out why that was. I thought it was because Section 31 had used holograms to deceive people, even though that didn't really make sense. But apparently in one of the episodes, number one indicated that the reason the Enterprise had the catastrophic failure they did in the very first episode of the season was because of the holographic communicators? Yeah, that was the in-universe explanation. Was it? Yeah, the very first episode where we see number one, she comes on to Discovery to give Pike an update on how Enterprise's repairs are going. And the two of them theorize that it was the holographic communicators that the ship couldn't handle. I thought that I thought it was because Control had put a virus in there. Or, or Control had messed with it somehow. But are we just saying like, it was too. Is that what we're going with? I, it's, I'm sorry. It's just too powerful. We need to. It is really weird to sit and be like, "Well, just fix it," kind of thing. But it's this very lazy. Like, okay, we're just going to explain why we use uh, the view screen for the next sixty years. And it also seems convenient that the catastrophic failure occurred at the same time the seven signals appear in the sky. I mean, I thought those were correlated. I thought that somehow the Red Angel had made the Enterprise fail in order to get Pike onto Discovery. Oh, see, that would have been better. Yeah. But I didn't find an, a canon explanation that supports that theory. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of things, missed opportunities here in Season 2 as well. And that's just another one of them. Plus, there's a lot of, you gotta, you gotta take the journey with them kind of thing, right? Like, yeah. okay, so what we're saying is Spock and his family never mentioned Michael or Discovery ever again. Really. Not once. Not ever. Okay. Sure. Oh, sure. Let's go with that. I, You know, and nobody ever mentioned the spore drive. Ever. To anybody. Not even, a, like, you know... 200 years later, nobody was like, hey, you know what? Maybe we should revisit this spore drive idea. Like, there's no records anywhere. There's no, you know? I mean, it would have been treason. They have a regulation against it. Yeah. Well, now, mm. they, they, they filled in those gaps. But yeah, we have to just take a lot of things like, yep, that's the way it is, because that's how it goes. That's, I mean, that's part of the reason why they're stuck. When they kept it in that time period, they're stuck. They're trapped between a rock and a hard place. I mean, like, 
how much can we change canon or affect canon or what kind of stories can we tell and not change or the past 60 years of television yeah and i mean i'm willing to hand wave stuff like that like okay but yes we need to because because they are at least making an effort they're at least and even if the effort doesn't quite work they're aware of it right they're aware like okay we want to give you a good show while also not twisting canon into a pretzel so here's how we're explaining this all right fine if you go to a show like enterprise where a laser came out of space and cut a canyon through florida and yet nobody's ever mentioned this that i have a bigger problem with (laughs) i mean i suppose that there are terrorist incidents in our own history that hundreds of years later we might forget even if it killed seven million people <laughs> I, you know what i will give you that i will not give you people just being like oh yeah the florida canyon it's always been here no uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> they must have just filled it back in at that point well like just, just i mean you know like there's this whole incredibly violent species that no one has ever like you know they'll bring up elvis presley but they won't mention oh yeah the zindi wow they were terrible like you know maybe there was a regulation against it (laughs) oh god talking about the zindi that's treason susan (laughs) (laughs) whichever star trek we're talking about whether it's enterprise or next generation star trek seems to be at its best when as we mentioned earlier there are politics in it and when it has a message when it's trying to say something And some people feel that that's one area where discovery falls short is that, oh, it's telling a fun story and there's plenty of action, especially in the first season. But what is it trying to convey? What is it about in the end? Do you feel that that's a valid concern? Hmm. That is a good one because look at me. This is a very different Star Trek. And maybe, yeah, that might be, I mean, there may be individual threads, but no overarching message. Yeah, I don't. I don't think there's a, a singular message. And and I mean, to be fair, I don't think other Star Treks had singular yeah. messages uh, other than, you know, what I believe to be the, the true message of Star Trek is, which is what humans are capable of when we put our differences aside and work together towards a common goal. Do you feel Discovery is about that? I do. I really do. But what I like about Discovery is that it doesn't believe there's only one right approach. It doesn't say this is the way you have to think about things. This is the air quote right way to be. You get a a character like Tyler. That's a complex character, man. That's nuanced as heck. Or Georgiou or Tilly or Reno even. You know, these are all different personality types and different ways of looking at things and thinking about things and treating people and they all have validity. And I think what one of the things I enjoy about discovery is it shows that validity. Whereas take next generation, for example, it's the goody goody option is the way to go. Like just choose the paragon (laughs) option that's that's what you do anybody choosing a renegade option is an immediate bad guy and it was very kind of one note that way which 
was appropriate for the yeah. time again. Whereas this is like, you know what, their ideals idealism is wonderful and it's aspirational. Ain't always practical or doable. So if we can't if we can't do the absolute best choice, because that's just not gonna happen, well, then what do we do? And that's life. Right? Like you'll have your idealized, like I want to, like, okay, good for you. Let's, what can we do with the resources we have? Be that people, time, money, whatever. Okay. Like how can you, where where I find a lot of people get lost. Allow me to break down some (laughs) lost before you, you don't mind. Oh, please do commander. People get stuck on the big things. I want to solve world hunger or achieve world peace or cure cancer, or they want to move the needle in a really big way. Because of course you want to make the world a better place. The ability to move the needle in a really big way, A, doesn't come up very often, and B, can only actually be accomplished by a very small number of people. Very small number of people have that kind of influence, resources, ability, skill, whatever. And so when they realize, well, gosh, I'm never going to move the needle in a big way, they just stop trying to move the needle at all. Moving the needle in little ways also counts. And I feel like discovery illustrates that. You can move the needle in small ways, and you're still pushing it towards that ultimate goal. It's okay if you can't swing for the fences right now. Just get on base. It's a little sports metaphor for you. I have no idea how much I need to hear that just now in my personal life. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have someone make sure they listen to that part of the show specifically. Yeah, I would certainly say the message of, for example, TNG was much more overt and heavy handed. For example, Wesley Crusher saying, I'll never understand why people do drugs. And Tasha saying, uh-huh. I hope you never do. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with Starfleet. We don't lie. <laughs> Ugh. Ugh. Yeah. So you're saying you prefer the subtle approach of discovery? I prefer and and again, this is it's we've we we can tell more sophisticated stories now on television. Next generation couldn't tell stories that nuanced because of Network TV being what it was at the time and the audience and, and all of that, the time that it was, it couldn't do much more than, I don't understand why people do drugs, right? Probably the fact that he was even mentioning that was probably huge at the time. Like, I mean, keep in mind that sort of time period, it was a major, 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 major newsworthy event to have two same sex characters kiss each other yeah right like that was a huge and now it's just like you know we have stamets is married and it's like okay he's married and the the issue there is that well hmm are you still really my husband if you've been reconstituted from matter found in the, <laughs> right like that's the issue that's at hand not oh golly two men are kissing yeah. like, you know, we, we're past that we're good we're just uh. we can focus on what really matters now <laughs> right, exactly. Like, how does a marriage counselor deal with that particular issue? Like, hmm. Okay. Huh. So, yeah, I feel like Discovery is telling a more subtle story, both because it wants to and because it has the opportunity to. 
One particular story I want to ask about, Bree and I already did an entire episode of Transporter Lock all about the season finale, so we don't need to recap that. But I am curious what we think of how this season finale compares with Discovery's first season finale. I don't even remember Discovery's first season. Just before I started recording, I started like re-skimming, like, what happened last time? And it was the, they had a deus ex machina of, let's just put a, let's make, make Kling- or Kronos a bomb. No, they were trying to end the Klingon War, and so Georgiou put a bomb in the core of Kronos. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. So this one's better. <laughs> Setting a high standard there. Because Bree wasn't a huge fan of the second finale. Really? But I thought it was much better than the first. That's not what I said. I just, it didn't gel with me. Like It just didn't get me as much as I wished it did, but not that I didn't like it. I wasn't a fan. You seemed whelmed. Yeah, I was just fine. And I, I want to go back and watch the two together to see if that changes. Do you think that even given your current opinion of the second season finale, it was better than the first one? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the first one, I remember us kind of walking away. It was like, well, okay, I guess that was kind of a quick end. Yeah, I felt the resolution to the first season was Georgiou was going to set off the bomb and destroy all the Klingons because in some way she is a sociopath. And Burnham stood in front of her and said, if you want to set off the bomb, you have to go through me. And Georgiou said... Eh, never mind then, here's the bomb. And they just, that was it. Very anticlimactic in my opinion. You know, I thought that Spock and Burnham had more meaningful conversations in this episode about letting people go and staying connected to people and the sacrifice that they needed to make and what needed to happen next. And that resonated a lot more with me, especially when you, as Bree mentioned, take the two-parter as one big episode the first one was very dialogue heavy and very emotional at times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and compared to that, I felt like we're going to set up a bomb in Kronos. Oh, I would have to kill Michael. Never mind. The, the first, yeah, the first season had some problems. I feel like Chloe, stop that. I do not know this to be true, but I suspect it to be true that they had plans and they were kind of, changing stuff along the way to deal with feedback about the show. And so I, I, it would not surprise me if that was not the way it was originally supposed to. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That, that would not surprise me at all. Whereas season two, I believe was very much as it was conceived from start to end. Yeah. Yeah. To your point about the second season and you miss an episode in your SOL, I felt like it was a much more cohesive story beginning to end. Definitely agree. Definitely. As opposed to your theory of, oh, they started the show and focus groups didn't like it. So they went back and shot two prequels and crammed those in. I am still 100% convinced that's what happened. Totally see it. And I don't feel like any sort of rethinking had to happen with the second season. Agreed. However, season two did end on not as much of a cliffhanger as the first season, but certainly left us with a lot of questions. I mean, once Discovery went through that wormhole, we didn't see them, and there was still another five to ten minutes left in the episode. So we don't know where they went. We know that from the signal that they arrived wherever they were headed. And so what are our theories about what season three of Discovery is going to look like? I don't have any. It, it's a problem I've had all season. It, there's no information to speculate. See, my here's my thing. I don't like trying to figure it out. I want to rock up when season three happens, and I'm going to be like, okay, 
put the entertainment in my face. <laughs> and I want to take the journey that they're laying out for me. So I'm not going to try and second guess them or be like, okay, well, I think it's going to be here and they're going to be doing this. I know who's on board. I thought it was an elegant way to remove them from a timeline where Spore Drive did not make sense. And it, it allows them to tell new and more interesting and more exotic stories. Cool. I'm on board. I'm here for it. Whatever. Where we end up, that's fine with me. You know what? Because, yeah, also, you know, with Star Trek, how it goes is it doesn't matter what era they go into. They always have the thing to be able to do the thing. Yeah, that's true. And so it doesn't matter if they jump a thousand years. They'll always have the right sensors or the right thing they can do with the emitter to do what they need to do. But we don't know what kind of future that is. I mean, Dr. Burnham described no. one where control has wiped out almost all sentient life. We presume that hasn't happened. But if it hasn't, that means that they are a thousand years out of date and any ship that they encounter will smartly outclass them. Yeah. Wait a minute, though. Is it? And this this might be something I just misunderstood with the whole anchor point and all that. Aren't they going to go to the planet where her mom was? That was the stated goal. But I thought they kind of had to. Like, I thought it was like a rubber band kind of thing. Or am I just wrong about that? I could be totally wrong about that. I think that's a valid theory. We're not quite sure, though. But okay. but yes, that seventh signal that Spock saw months later came from the Beta Quadrant, 51,000 light years away, which is roughly where Terralysium is. Mm, okay. Okay. Although, I don't understand, because they beat, here's, what, here's something I didn't get. Control was neutralized, so why did they have to go at all? Uh, that was, the hypothesis is that, at that point, they don't know that all the control is just the local control. They don't know if it's Oh. Yeah, yeah, because Leland, oh, Leland was on Discovery when they went through the wormhole, and they knew right. that he was dead. But mm -hmm. even I was wondering last week, why was Control centralized in one meat sack? Yeah, yeah, but but maybe it wasn't. Okay, or maybe there are other entities that want that sphere data. Who knows what Section Thirty One could do with it? Oh, there you go. That's that's mm -hmm. how they deal with the whole they're out of date thing. They've got the magical sphere data. <laughs> Which is also a thousand years out of date. Oh, but history only repeats itself. Wisdom, of blah, <laughs> blah. Technologies that have never been encountered before, blah, blah. And it is starting to integrate itself into discovery, as we saw when yes. it allowed itself, it did not allow itself to self-destruct. Mm -hmm. And so there's still the theory that the sphere data becomes the AI that we saw in the short trek Calypso. Right. Yeah. Here's my thing though. Why didn't you just like turn all the power off on the ship? They probably wouldn't let it. Uh, okay. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it was one of those things where you just like, yep, this is the way it is because that's the way it is. All right. Yeah. That, okay. Sure. <laughs> it's still interesting though, because Calypso said that it had been abandoned by its crew like a thousand years earlier. Which, oh, yeah. which makes me wonder, is that a thousand... I mean, they already jumped a thousand years into the future. So does Calypso take place a thousand years after that? Which would be like the or, 42nd century. Yeah. Or do writers <laughs> just really like the phraseology with thousand years? Yeah. It is... Yeah. A millennium is a convenient unit. It's nice. 
it's nice. One theory I saw on Reddit. We we we've all here have played Chrono Trigger, right? Yes, but I never finished it because that bit with the wind on the hill is BS. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't remember that detail. I hear you there. Oh god, you have to Okay, so you have to walk up this hill and there's this really strong wind blowing you backwards. So you have to like hide be- behind trees when it blows. So it's like it blows, you're hiding behind a tree. And then when it stops, you scuttle to the next one and it, ugh. And that stopped you. Oh yeah, I was like, "Nope. Mm-mm, no." This is annoying. <laughs> well, there is a point in the game where they are in a desert and they decide that they need to reforest the desert, which they, by their calculations will take roughly 500 years. So the whole party stays in the present, except for their one immortal character, Robo, who they send 500 years into the past. And he does the work to reforest the desert. And boom, now in the present, they have what they need, which is a forest. So the theory is a thousand years in the future which is where the Discovery just jumped to, they're going to come across some sort of scenario where, I don't know, they need an AI to evolve. And so they send Discovery back to the present a thousand years and and while the crew stays in the future, and then they just go Uh, to where it is, and now they have what they need. Because we, we did see in Season 1 that the Spore Drive seems to have perhaps not intentionally or purposely, some limited amount of time travel capability. When they came back from the Mirror Universe, it was eight months in the future after the Klingon War, almost. I thought they had just been in the Mirror Universe for eight months. That's possible. I would have to go back and rewatch season one. I mean, it did feel like it. (laughs) Woo! Snap! (laughs) I like the Mirror Universe. Oh, I do. I do too. It just, I know that was a common complaint, but... That's true. We don't know how long Burnham was captain of the Shenzhou pretending to be her mirror self. It's possible. Yeah. Yeah. And we also don't know who the Vidresh are that they were fighting in Calypso. We believe it's some sort of permutation of the word federation. Oh, I like that. That's fun. But what does that mean? Is that control has taken over the federation? We don't know. That's a fun idea. I like that. And we also know that they are working on a Section 31 spinoff show starring Captain Georgiou, who's now a thousand years in the future. Yeah, that I don't get. I don't see how that works. I'm ready for just like, yep, there's some time travel thing going to happen or she goes back in time, back to her. T- or maybe she goes to a different time. I don't think that's going to be that. But I'm just like, I'm waiting for the ride. I'm not interested in trying to speculate because I don't have enough information to speculate. I think we just have different minimum thresholds necessary to speculate because I'm happy to guess. But, but there must be some sort of additional time travel involved in order to get Georgiou no. onto her own show. Because a Section 31 show set a thousand years in the future doesn't make sense to me. No, I agree with that. Also, I mean, Tyler gets left behind. He's in charge of Section 31 now. So, I, I mean, I assumed the spinoff would be him and her. That's what I always thought as well. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. You know, I... <laughs> I will say, uh, ironically, as someone uh, who loves Doctor Who as much as I do, I really don't like time travel stories. <laughs> they bug me. Huh. It just, it seems like a way to a, a way to write yourself out of a corner more often than not. No, it totally is. It totally is like the, okay, well, this is the thing we're going to do to fix all the things we just broke. And yeah. with no repercussions. Time travel. Yeah. <laughs> See, my least favorite Terminator movie is the only one to not have time travel. See, that's – I feel like Terminator 
the time travel is the point. Yeah. If that's the point, then fine. It's when it's not the point that I'm like, oh, okay, we're going to fix the broken thing by traveling through time. Okie dokie. All right. Time travel. I love it, but I also uh, annoyed with it. <laughs> but that's why it's okay in Doctor Who, because that is the point of Doctor Who. Correct. Correct. It's really just a – but the thing is, what I, what I appreciate about Doctor Who, it's not – Anytime it comes up, okay, well, we're in this really bad situation. Why don't you just hop back a day or two and fix the thing? And it's always like, it doesn't work that way. You can't do it that way. No. So the the time travel part is really just an excuse for him to be able to go anywhere at any moment. Actually, well, if we're being really honest about it, the original – in its original uh, iteration, Doctor Who was a show for children mm-hmm. and the time travel was so that they could do historical episodes and not have to use a lot of money to make futuristic costumes. They could just make people Aztecs and whatnot. Did not know that. Yeah. 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 That's fascinating because I got hooked on Doctor Who when I was about six years old and my mom was baffled why I wasn't more terrified of it. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was not Daleks. The whole thing about hiding behind the couch to watch the Daleks, yeah. <laughs> hiding behind the couch? Oh. So that's – okay. So if you ask pretty much anybody from, from England about Doctor Who, of a certain age, I should say, uh, they'll all talk about hiding behind the couch, peeking around the side to watch the Daleks because it scared them so much. Oh. Yeah. It, it was scary, but I just found it fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought it was scary, but, you know. There was one episode, I don't remember which one, but had, like, a, a creeping disembodied hand that possessed people. Oh, uh, yeah, Hand of Fear. That's a great one. <laughs> that freaked me out. And possibly, I'm also terrified of spiders. Oh, yeah. Then there's that one episode where the spiders are on their backs. And that's Oh, I didn't yeah. even know about that. I just meant that the oh. creeping hand of fear reminded me of a spider. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, that's a really good... Okay, so, and this is totally off point, but, again, fun fact about Hand of Fear. So... Uh, so in Hand of Fear, they find this a hand of somebody, and Sarah Jane Smith takes it into a uh, nuclear plant so it can absorb radiation and become its full personage again. And it was this actress that was in this skin-tight suit. Well, so they, the suit, they literally had to sew her into it every t- for her entire yeah. – right? Okay. <laughs> so when it came time for – so the character uh, Eldrad made itself into a woman because of Sarah Jane. Oh, okay. That's what people on this planet look like. I will look like that. When it got back to its air quote true shape, it's this big baggy kind of costume and a dude. And it's that big baggy costume because they're like, I'm sorry, but we are not sewing anybody else into anything. There's going to be some snaps in the back. That's it. You're done. Kind of reminds me of Seven of Nine. Didn't she have to be sewed into her costume? Or poured into it? They won an award for that costume. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Because, okay, if you think about cloth and the way it works, it it goes from a high point to a low point. And, you know, it just makes a slope. It should, like, they actually had to do engineering to get it to cling to her as well as it did. Amazing. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I was recently watching the TV show Leverage. Ah, yes. Which I'd never seen before. And it debuted in 2008. And I was watching the first season. 
there's one episode in the first season where they are going into the airport and they need to have a fake ID to board the plane. And of course, that's what they do. They have false identities at the ready. And so one of them asks, which IDs do you have on you? And he pulls out a bunch of passports and he says, I have Tom Baker, Peter Davison, and Sylvester McCoy. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. There were no nods, no winks, no acknowledgement of where these names came from. It was just there for the audience if you get it. And if you don't, it didn't matter. Love it. I loved how subtle it was. And it took me a while to figure out why I was watching Leverage. Like It just came in at the library one day and I was like, did I request this? Apparently I did and I just forgot. Uh, a friend of mine had recommended it to me. And once I got into it, I was like, oh, it's like directed by Jonathan Frakes and it has a guest appearance by him and all these cool geek references. Okay, now I get why I'm watching this. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's a fun show. Well, we have covered a lot about season two of Discovery and hopefully season three and where it might go. I want to mention that there is also a comic book series coming out called Star Trek Aftermath, which focuses on where the Enterprise was during the Klingon War, which we know was a point of contention for Pike and why he sometimes felt the need to engage in action to make up for not being there when the war went down. So it'll be interesting to see where he actually was in Aftermath coming out this summer. Any closing thoughts about Discovery for either of you? I'm looking forward to season three. I mean, overall, I really like season two, much more than one. And if they can, if they can continue that, sweet. Susan? I'm just really glad they snipped off Saru's fear. Tales. Yes. We didn't even talk about Saru and his change. I like Saru. <laughs> Yeah, it's been great seeing him take charge. I loved it when he faced down Leland in the season finale and said, surrender your ships, no deals. You know, that is not something we would have seen him do a season ago. So Mm -hmm. I look forward to seeing continuing evolution of these characters. Who knows? Maybe Saru will be captain next, although he wasn't willing to talk about it in the finale. I see a lack of alternatives in the future. He won't be captain. Somebody has to be. Somebody has to be, but it won't be somebody who requires that much time and makeup. <laughs> it's, not, it's, it's still a human show. <laughs> I, but he's still on every episode, so what does it matter? One would assume that if he's captain, he would be on it more, which means he's in more scenes. Or he has to be on set longer. And if it takes him 14 hours to get into his makeup, that impacts the entire shooting schedule. But also, have we ever had a non-human captain? On air for long? No. We've had Vulcans. Mm -mm. I mean, I know that Starfleet has other captains, and we've seen them, but not as main characters. No. Mm -mm. If they do it, cool. It's unprecedented for Star Trek, but it's still the Michael show. Oh, I'm not disagreeing with that. Michael will remain the main character, absolutely. But I don't think that Discovery, in the absence of a captain, is going to form a Democratic committee to run itself. (laughs) No, there will be a captain, obviously. Yes. Completely agree. One theory, and although not a particularly serious one, was that they were going to aim to jump a thousand years into the future, but accidentally jump, say, 140 years instead, and that the Federation would assign Picard to run Discovery, and that's the new Picard (laughs) show. The new Picard show is Discovery. <laughs> Hold you. <laughs> okay. That would be fun. <laughs> I would watch it. 
I mean, oh, yeah, yeah, like who, like, <laughs> let's not pretend we don't watch it. And with so many Star Trek shows in the works, it's hard to believe that they wouldn't try some sort of crossover. Uh, yeah. I don't know. So we'll see. Until then, Susan, thank you so much for joining us on this season two recap of Transporter Lock. Thank you for having me. It was a hoot. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. I love having you here. (laughs) And this will be the last Transporter Lock for a while. We're going on a bit of hiatus ourselves. We don't know when season three of Discovery will premiere or if other Star Trek shows will air in the meantime. If they do, we will certainly be here to chat about it, but we're going to take a well-deserved rest after season two of Discovery, and we will be back when there's more Trek to talk about. Until next time. I need my own tagline now because Pike's gone. Uh, But hit it for now. (laughs) If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at TransporterLock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at TransporterLock.com. Well, now, this makes me want to ask Susan, what is it you love so much about the Spider-Man musical? Oh, my God. It is so gloriously terrible. It is remarkable in its awfulness. It is not just not good. It is so spectacularly bad. It's like it's on purpose. It's, oh my God. Yeah, okay. First of all, I highly recommend the book Sing a Song of Spider-Man, which is the uh, background of how, of the of the whole thing, how they got to where they were. When, uh, so when it originally, I was working at The Escapist when it was originally on Broadway and we were doing stories about it constantly. And we were just fascinated by the slow motion car wreck that was this Broadway show. And then I finally got to see it and it was everything (laughs) I hoped it would be. It was so, it was so bad. It, but, but in amongst all that bad, there was stuff that was really incredible. Like the aerial stuff they did to make Spider-Man do Spider-Man stuff is amazing. It was absolutely fascinating. There are, a few good songs in there and everybody was tr- they were trying oh they were trying their best bless their hearts they tried so hard <laughs> yeah Heavy. that's why it's 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 just so delightfully awful <laughs> it's no longer on broadway right like we can't it is not so how how do i go see it it I believe it is go- moving to Las Vegas. But why would it go to Vegas if it's so bad? But 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 it's 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 how do I explain the kind of bad that it is? It's so <laughs> enjoyable. Because it's so expensive and you see like these big names that were associated with it and it's like wow you guys ate it. You ate it hardcore on this. And that's delightful. Yeah. It's, it's hubris, the musical. (laughs) I'm so glad we're still recording.